You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. So we're going to be finishing up the chapter 11 of Joshua, verses 16 through 23. I'm going to read it again, and then we'll, we'll, we'll work through parts of it here. So here's God's word. It says, So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negeb and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel and its lowland, from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal, God, in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab and from all the hill country of Judah, from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. May again pray for us as we look through this. Father, again, I ask for your guidance, your spirit to work amongst us. And we thank you, Lord, that we've already heard your word. We've already called out to you, Lord, and committed our time to you. Lord, we just acknowledge by praying before I would preach that unless you work and unless your Holy Spirit works, these are just words that I would say, words from a man. So we pray, Lord, that you would work through this. Father, again, we prayed often that, uh, Lord, if there's words here that are spoken that are not yours, not your direction, then, Lord, may they fall on deaf ears. But, Lord, where you have spoken clearly, uh, may you open ears to hear your word, to be encouraged, convicted where we need to be, uh, and to see, again, your greatness and your greatness in your Son, Jesus. Your great mercy and grace. And we pray all of this, Lord, bless our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today's text, we're kind of in the middle. Joshua has taken the, the northern tribes, and this is kind of a, a bit of a summary statement today. But it, it peels back, if you think of, of this account as an onion, it peels back a layer of that onion. If you've taken onions apart, this is peeling back further layers of Maybe an onion we could call God's work in Canaan. This is how he works there, and we're peeling back another one to see another aspect of what was behind the victories here for Israel. And just in case, so just in case we or they thought it was by their own might and strength that victory came, we have the text in front of us. So we're going to look at that. Verses 16 through 17, I won't read them again, but they give a dimension that unless we're more familiar with the land, we're just reading 
hard words to understand. And we'll look at that in further sermons as we look through Joshua. Some of these, we, we get to them and we go, I don't even know how to pronounce that. But here's some of the point. These hard words, 16, 17, the Arabah, Negev, Goshen, all these places, they describe the entirety of the land of Israel. So you've got hill country, Negev, Goshen, that's areas to the south. You've got the lowland or the Arabah, that's areas to the north. And then even uniquely it identifies Mount, Mount Halak, which is in the far south, to Mount Hermon in the far north. So it's basically saying all the land was taken. Joshua took all of this land. Verse 17 tells us, and who as well? He struck all their kings, putting them to death. This is an impressive list. We're going to look at that next week as we get into chapter 12. 31 kings, I believe chapter 12 says, that they struck down. Connected to this, so there's kind of this summary. All this lion Joshua took. Connected is a timing in verse uh, 18 that tells us Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. And it's easy as we just read through Joshua to feel like, okay, day one, two, three, I don't know, maybe a year. It's kind of maybe where I can go. Um, we think just here it's done. The SV Study Bible suggests this, suggests these battles ensued for around seven years. So we don't see that, but a long time. They suggest this. Now, that's based, and we're not getting into this, based on the age of Caleb, who's given elsewhere. So Caleb was so old here. He's so old here, they did this, and that's how they're mathematically figuring some of these things out. And there's some application just briefly for us, thinking about the time, whoa, seven years. You know, I'm thinking maybe a year? Lest we think we ought to see victory in short order, after we've prayed, perhaps maybe we've prayed a couple weeks about something and we want to see God's provision, He's going to provide in His own perfect timing. In his timing. And so there's that time, perhaps seven years here, as the one source says. But here's the important part. What I want you to see the, well, it's all important. It's God's word. Strike that. Come back. It's important. But look at verse 16, just the beginning words that says, So Joshua took all that land. So Joshua took all that land. In fact, this word took is mentioned three times just in our passage. We've got it here in verse 16. It shows up again in verse 19 that they took them all in battle. And then it shows up again in verse 23. Look at verse 23. It's actually the exact same wording in Hebrew. We, we see it, at least in the ESV, as so Joshua took the whole land. So Joshua here, 23, took the whole land, and 16 took all the land. You could say similar phrases. And they form, we're going to look at this, Maybe not exactly, but I think there's some sort of sandwich going on here. And we go, sandwich, we know it. We already got this down, right? The, the two buns meet in the middle of the Scripture. So you've got this first part, Joshua took the land. What land? All the land. What kings? All the kings. And then you've got this section at the bottom, he took the whole land, according to the Lord had spoken through. Moses and these sorts of things, the Anakim are, are listed there, that sort of thing. And then, I believe, in the middle of this, verses 19 through 20, is some of the meat of the passage. Kind of looking at this, they took, they took, they took. Here, get this point here. So, let's look at that. So, for now, we're going to skip. So, if the top bun is what we just looked at, verse 16 through 18, 
Let's skip down to verse 21 through 23. Look at that a little bit, and then we'll come back. So 21 through 22, Joshua came at that time, cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them, who's them? Anakim, to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza and Gath and in Ashdod did some remain. Do you remember the Anakim? Now the M is important. It's not Anakin. That's Luke's dad. For those in the Star Wars. You're with me. We're still together. Okay, that's like a dad joke. That's a really poor dad joke there. It's Anakim. And we find them in Numbers 13. You don't have to look there. I'm going to just sum it. If you want to, you, please go to these scriptures. But Numbers 13, we read about the first spy mission into the land of promise, into Canaan. The first one. That was when Moses was still leading Israel. Here's what part of the spies reported. Remember that f- first it was a failed mission. They went in. They spied all right, but they came back. Remember the, the bad reports? Here's what they reported. The people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Anakim. Skipping a couple verses, here's what they say. We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out, it's a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And yet here, our passage and others, Joshua 11, the Anakim whom Israel had feared in the wilderness. And remember then, because of this fear and unbelief in God, they wandered for these 40 years. Now here, those feared lie devoted to destruction by Joshua. And we're going to see in chapter 14 by Caleb. God had the victory. They would inhabit the land. But why? Why, though, could Joshua and Caleb with them Why could they take this land? Look at verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land, important, according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. There it is again, right? You see that Joshua took the whole land according to what? According to all that the Lord had spoken to to Moses. We're not looking at, you can look at Deuteronomy 9, 7, there's other places, these, these, these promises. The Lord had fulfilled what He had spoken to Moses. He really is fulfilling what He'd spoken to Abraham, Isaac, so forth. God fulfills His Word. What He says, He will do. Last week, we looked at that. Our the title of the sermon last week was, we were looking at us, doing just as God commands. God commands it, we're to do just as He says. 
here, title this week, God does just as he says. God does what he says he will do. He fulfills his promises in all of his unique ways. Israel receives the inheritance, and we're going to look at that in chapter 13 and beyond as as kind of we're in a transition period going into 12 to 13, transition of all the war and conquering to the inheritance and allotments and all those sorts of things. We'll look at that. But for now, all the taking, all the conquering is calm. The land has rest. And it prepares to go further into the book. But coming back then, we looked at both aspects. He took all the land, how much? North, south, everything. He took all the land according to God's word. And then let's look back at verses 19 through 20. Maybe we'd say the heart of taking the land. And verse 19 says this. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. The account here, this is of Gibeon, those Hivites. They alone made peace with Israel. Out of all these kings, 31, as I mentioned in chapter 12, one kingdom makes peace, Gibeon. And Jesus said this in Matthew seven thirteen through 14. Familiar words, maybe. He said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. I want to show to you a picture. We've got just one picture today. And maybe Caleb will bring the lights down. And you're, it's going to be hard to see. Some of you have maybe seen this picture before. It's from the 1860s. My parents have a painting of this, although it's in English, at their house somewhere. But you can see, if, if you can kind of go, you can see a road over on the left side. There's kind of, and there's two gates at the bottom. You can't, probably where you're at, can't see them great. But one gate is the, the wide gate. And there's all these people traveling the wide way, the wide gate, up towards, and in the end, that mountain of smoke, destruction. And over on the side is a little small, little narrow gate. A couple people going through, a couple people on their way to glory. Kind of illustrating this idea, I think, of Matthew 7. It was a picture devised by a Charlotte Rayland. I didn't write down the, the actual artist here, but 1860s. And again, it gives, it gives an idea of this, this wide and narrow. Thank you guys for showing that up there. Wide and narrow way. You can look it up on Wikipedia somewhere. It's really a fascinating picture. There's a lot to study in it if you look at it. Um, But here's a question. What's the difference between the two? Why the wide for one and the narrow for the other? Uh, Why is one so hardened that they gladly, they gladly choose the wide gate and say, we love this gate. We're going to go here. We love where we're going. And yet some are so broken of sin that they go through the gate and find Christ. That's what verse 20, I think, speaks towards. So look at verse 20. It says some pretty uh, heavy things here. It says, For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts. Whose hearts? The, not the Gibeons. The, the, it's the, all the enemies. Everybody. No cities, took all of them. It was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts 
that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Why is there such opposition to Israel here in this land as we read? Only Gibeon spared? What's the underlying cause? Because God hardens hearts according to His Word. God hardens hearts according to His Word. The the text reads literally, for from the Lord it was to harden their heart. This, I mean, it just the sentence begins with the word because. Because it was the Lord from Yahweh, their hearts were hardened. And then all these other really verbs of this sentence are to this, to this, to this. It's like the purpose behind all these things is the Lord's hardening. Now, if this sounds familiar, hopefully it does, it's because there's the same idea in the account of Moses and Pharaoh. Repeats numerously you can start exodus 4 to 14 and look at it i don't have it here how many times it's listed but over and over god hardens the heart of pharaoh now there are a few places where pharaoh hardens his own heart there's lat language but overwhelmingly it's god that hardens pharaoh's heart and so too verse 20 our verse 20 where we're at we find god is behind the hardening of these enemies of israel for their destruction And if we're thinking here, we might have a question that comes up as we look into these areas. And the question might be, so why are these nations destroyed? I mean, if God hardens their hearts, how can they be responsible for what they're doing? Okay, so God hardened it. Shouldn't shouldn't they not be destroyed? He's the one behind it, not them. Well, we have some help. It's in Romans 9, and I do want you to go there. The book of Romans 9, and I think it's helpful, even because Pharaoh comes up here in this book. So Romans chapter 9, let's look at this. We're not going to read the whole chapter. Try to give you a little context, get us into it. Uh, If you're using a pew Bible, you're using a red one, I'm helping you out. Page 125 in the back. If you've got a black one, one of those hard shell, uh, it's page 945. We'll get you there. Quickly, So the black one, page 945, red one, page 125. Uh, Specifically, we'll start at verse 14 of Romans 9. But a little context, Paul here, he's in the midst of sorting through why Israel, who had the promises, who of all people should know God, why are some of them not saved? Why not all? Because he says this, he says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He, he means that being born into a certain family doesn't make someone a Christian or, or here a child of God. Just saying I'm this doesn't make you that. There's something else going on. And that something else is God's purposes of election. What do we mean by that? His purposes of election. The choosing of one to be saved, not the other. And those have nothing to do, Paul says, of being good or bad. They have everything to do with God's divine calling according to his purposes. So another question, is God just to do this? Is he just? To even come back from our study from Joshua, is he fair? 
Is he just? He hardens some and then he has mercy on others? So let's look at how Paul answers even this question in this passage. Verse 14 begins with that question. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. What's he saying? No. So if we read no further, we would say, is God just? Yes. But to go further. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16, so then, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this, person, uh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That he might what? He might show power, that he might show his glory. There it is. He hard, there's our word even, hardens. So verse 19, anticipating more questions. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Here's the answer. Why is mankind responsible then? Aren't they kind of off the hook because of this? Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Paul is making a distinction here. And these are hard areas to struggle through, but he's making a distinction here between what is created, that's you and I, the creature, and the creator who is God. We're made in his image, but there is a difference between what's molded and the molder, the potter. God is the potter here. And that gives him the absolute authority and right to do all of what he wants to do. Hardening, softening. But another question maybe, is he just power hungry? He kind of arbitrarily, he hardens one and not the other. I mean, just, I'll read to you Deuteronomy 32.4. You can write it down. Is God unjust? Is he just kinda, he's just kind of an arbitrary, some days right, some days gets it wrong. Here's what it says of God, Deuteronomy 32.4. The rock, that's God, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. This is a verse powerfully to describe the potter who's not only sovereign, but he's just. He's without sin. He's perfect and upright. On a quote from you, a Christian philosopher, Gordon Clark, he's no longer with us, but he said this, God is sovereign, 
It's a short quote, but I think really helpful. It says, God is sovereign. He's over, controls all things. He's sovereign. Whatever he does is just for this very reason. He's going to tell us, why is God just? How come? And here's the big answer. Because he does it. Everything a sovereign God does is just. Why? Not because he's answerable to us, but because he does it. Because he is just. All of what God does, it's just and right because of who he is. And we can try to wonder, we can try to ask, why not one, why the other, why the hardening, why the mercy, why, and and ask. But we're not given those secret things. Nor are we to say, you, not you, 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 those sorts of things. We're not, we're not God. We're just told all of what God does. Harden some, he has mercy on others, and it's all just. But here's what should be amazing to us if we understand where we're at before this holy God. That he should have mercy at all to rebels like us. You, me, Israel, We who willingly, gladly pursue the wide gate, we are going through the wide gate not because we're tugged through and we feel like we'd rather not. We're going because we love the wide gate. And we go in opposition to God. Israel had not earned the promised land. God said they're a rebellious people and in His grace, according to His promise, He fought for them, He hardened others. All have sinned. We read about Romans as well. And God is perfectly just and right to punish each one of us for our own sin. And get this, by His grace, He has poured out that punishment in order for justice to take place on another, on Christ, on the cross, so that we might be saved by faith in Him who sovereignly calls. Jesus says this, John 6.37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. We don't need to be worried. I want to come to Jesus. Am I elect? Is is my heart hardened? If you want to come, you're coming because he's called. He will not cast out the one who comes to him for mercy. And I think we see a picture of this in Rahab and Gibeon in the Old Testament, right in Joshua. Out of all of them, they came. I mean, God called them. So, to sum up Joshua 11, verse 20, it's really, I think it's giving us a behind-the-scenes, if you will, of the orchestration of the power, the orchestration of God fulfilling His words of promise. And so, two takeaways from this passage in Joshua 11. Just two of them, and I believe they're integrated truths. They're not separate, they're together. Number one, this world operates according to God's word. Praise the Lord. This world is not a chaotic mess. It looks like it to us in sin. We see that. But overall, general, God's Word, it operates according to it. And number two, this world operates according to God's will. It operates according to God's Word and according to God's will. First, God's Word. God's Word had promised this land that Israel is in so long ago to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, and what does God do? He fulfills His Word. It takes place. All of what He says, He does. 
And then it takes place according to his will. How, how can we be sure that God is going to accomplish what he says he will do in his word? Because this world operates and it's sustained according to his will. The potter has not left the studio. The creator has not removed his hand. God has prepared some for this, others for that, according to his good, just, right, and perfect will. So we leave this with questions. Can you trust his word? Absolutely. Can you boast in your coming to Christ? Absolutely not. Can we praise God and give him glory for his mercy to reveal Christ to us and call us to himself? Absolutely. Let me pray. Lord, I recognize whenever we think about these areas, they are challenging and hard. And Father, we don't want our pride to get in the way as if we figure it all out. There's, there's maybe many questions. And yet, Lord, we do say thank you. Thank you for what you've revealed in your word. This, these passages about Pharaoh and these enemies in Joshua and this passage in Romans 9 give us answers. They, they don't give us maybe everything. Why this? Why that? But Lord, we recognize you're sovereign. And why do you do just things? Because you do them. Because you are just. Lord, may we trust in you and your ways and your word. Thank you, Lord, that when we read your word, and, and we hear from it that you're coming back for your people, it's true. And we can bank on it. And you're not wondering if it's going to happen. You will fulfill it according to your purposes. And when you say, when we come to Christ and we trust Him for eternal life, that we have eternal life, we can bank on it. We have it because you're a faithful God. So give us hope, Lord. When the questions come up, when the nagging questions come up, Lord, may we turn it back to say, glory to God. He's sovereign. I trust Him. I, I trust Your will. Thy will be done. And Lord, we thank You for Your mercy in the midst of our sinfulness, our running to the wide gate. You were merciful to call Your own to come to Christ. May we rejoice in that. And Lord, those that are just having eyes open that say, I, I want Christ. Oh, Lord, may they run. You will not reject those that come to you by faith. So strengthen them in that. Thank you, Lord. We praise your name.